Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. All the kids at the pep rally who think they are nerds to come forward. So nearly everyone in the place does. So the nerds won. Yes. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette. Coming up, public radio nerds know Will Shorts as the Puzzle Master. But he also has another nerdy passion. It's something he and comedian Judah Friedlander also happen to have in common. All that plus an epic Lord of the Rings confession. Right here on Nerdette. We didn't set out to do a whole episode about table tennis. But I love it. I grew up playing basement ping pong with my brother and my dad. Most of my friends stopped playing with me when I got vaguely better than them. So I petered out there at the end of high school because I hit one friend in the eye with a (laughs) ping pong ball with a pretty hard serve. And suddenly nobody wants to play anymore. (laughs) So besides that, and then a little time in college, I haven't played a lot of ping pong since. This episode really makes me miss playing ping pong. I might have to seek out one of these ping pong clubs Will and Judah talk so much about. Me too. One thing we wondered about early on was if ping pong is an ignorant person's term for table tennis. I always kind of figured ping pong was what I did in junior high gym and table tennis was what like Forrest Gump was so good at. We found a great comment thread on the Guardian's website that addressed just this thing. Turns out it's a contentious issue. One person says ping pong was the name given to the game when it was played by gentlemen and ladies. Another commenter notes that James Thurber pointed out ping pong backwards is gnopgnip, which actually sounds much more like a game of table tennis. So we decided to ask Will Shorts, who is not only a well-known table tennis player, but a word nerd. We figured he'd have the definitive answer. Will Shorts is an A-list nerd of all types. He's the crossword puzzle editor at the New York Times, and he's also NPR's official puzzle master. And since here at Nerdette, we're determined to talk to people not just about the things they're best known for, but the things they nerd out about in their free time. We couldn't talk to Will about just puzzles. No, because even people who make one nerdy passion their day job have other things they obsess about. Just so that we're sensitive about all the terminology around this, is there a difference between ping pong and table tennis? The answer is they are the same, but I say ping pong is the game, table tennis is the sport. So if you're just batting the ball around in your basement, it's probably ping pong. And if you're entering competitions, it's probably table tennis. It's kind of like the difference between film and movies. Is that an okay analogy? If you're serious about it, it's a film. If you're casual about it and eating popcorn, it's a movie? Yeah, that's not bad. And really, I have no problem with people calling it ping pong. It's just a game either way. Well, and there is something very pleasant about the onomatopoeia and that sort of alliterative quality to the term ping pong. Yeah. The game was invented, people believe, in the 1890s in England. And back in those days, they had wooden paddles. There was no rubber on them. They were literally wood with a celluloid ball. And it sounded like ping pong when the ball went back and forth. 
paddles nowadays are covered with rubber. In fact, they're inverted rubber with smooth on the outside. It really doesn't sound so much like ping pong anymore. It sounds like your origin story with this sport is similar to mine, which was a basement rec room playing for fun. But you take this sport more seriously. It's become a part of your daily life. Yeah, daily is right. I started playing when I was a kid, and I won some trophies when I was in high school. In 2001, I found a table tennis club near where I live in New York. So I started playing there one day a week and then two days a week. Then we expanded the club, and I was three days a week and just kept building up from there. In 2006, a top player from Barbados came to our area and became my coach. Then I started really taking the game seriously. We opened the Westchester Table Tennis Center in 2011. It's one of the largest table tennis facilities in North America. We have 19 tables. And unless I'm traveling, I literally play there every day. Today is my 727th consecutive day of play. Wow. On October 3rd, I'll have my second anniversary of never missing a day of play. Oh my gosh. That is delightful. I also would like to commend you for your appropriate use of the term literally. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That is a feat. If you're playing all over the country as you travel for the rest of your work, you must have a really good sense of what the sport is like in America as a whole. You know what your club is like in your hometown, obviously, in New York, but if you find a ping pong club online and walk in in a random city, what is it like? Well, clubs vary of all sorts. You know, I've played at ones that have just a single table up to a place in Toronto that has 36 tables and they've since expanded. They're at over 60 tables now, I think. My friend from the club, Robert, who's my coach, he and I are going on a table tennis road trip through the Midwest. I have now played at table tennis clubs in 43 states. Wow. And one of my goals is to be the first person ever to play at table tennis clubs in all 50 states. We are flying to Omaha, Nebraska, and playing there. The next day, we're going to play in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and then with a side trip down to Sargent Bluff, Iowa. Then we're going to Fargo, North Dakota, and Madison, Wisconsin. And I'll pick up four states that I've never played in before. What will the last three be? I will be down to Mississippi, Wyoming, and Hawaii. And these are so spread out, I think they're going to have to be three separate trips. I think I'm going to leave Hawaii till last. And that will be my reward for doing this. Ping pong in Hawaii sounds pretty awesome. Well, and that's fitting because it was the last state to join the union, too. There you go. I have to say, Will, I also love that you're doing your patriotic duty here and recruiting ping pong players for the American Olympic team. And not just encouraging folks to come. You actually have an Olympic hopeful in your home, right? Yes. I am now the guardian for a 17-year-old Chinese boy. His name is Kai Zhang. He was champion for his age in Beijing. He idolizes our coach, Robert. We have this great table tennis facility. And where we live, I live in a little town, Pleasantville, New York. He likes this community. And his goal, when he becomes a U.S. citizen, is to represent the United States in the Olympics. So this is sort of like having the Harry Potter of table tennis in your house. (laughs) Yeah. You're the crossword editor for the New York Times, you're the puzzle master for NPR, and you find time to play ping pong every day. How does this passion, ping pong, relate to your love of puzzles? I enjoy table tennis for the same reason other people enjoy crosswords. Each is a brain activity, and when you're doing it, you get completely wrapped up in it, you tune out everything else in the world, 
you focus on doing the best you can, and when you're done, you feel relaxed and refreshed and going back to everything else in life. Most people get that pleasure from crosswords. With me, since that's my livelihood, I spend all day with puzzles, I get my relaxation from table tennis. I will go to my club. Within five or ten minutes, I am just soaked in sweat. I'm focused on improving my game or winning the match. And when I'm done, I just feel great and uh, ready to go back to puzzles. Well, one thing we were really curious about is the fact that you have a degree in enigmatology. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, Indiana University, where I went to school, has a program called the Individualized Majors Program. And if you're accepted in it, you can major in absolutely anything you want. I convinced people at IU that puzzles were a serious field of academic study. And so that's what my college major was. Indiana had no courses on puzzles, so I made them all up myself. One of my first courses was on crossword construction. I found a professor in the English department who was willing to work with me. Every few weeks, I would create a new crossword, go into his office, and sit while, literally, he was right by me solving the puzzle and critiqued it. And that's how I made my first professional quality crosswords. Took a couple courses on mathematical puzzles, one on logic puzzles with a professor in logic. Took a course on the psychology of puzzles. And the idea there was, first of all, how does the brain work when we're solving problems? And also, why do we as humans feel so compelled to solve puzzles? What pleasure do we get from it? And my thesis was on the history of American word puzzles before 1860. Now, I want to go back to school and get a degree in puzzles. That sounds like the perfect degree. It's perfect for me, yeah. It's fair to say this is not the first time that I've questioned my degree in English literature. (laughs) (laughs) Is it possible to spot a puzzler on sight? Wow. On sight. You know, like sometimes I walk through the grocery store and I'm like, they listen to public radio, they listen to public radio, they listen to public radio. Can you do the same thing? I think I can tell a puzzle sort of person by talking with them. Of course, that's a lot easier. A puzzle sort of person has a flexible mind. That's the most important thing. If you like crosswords, you also like words and you can spell and you know a lot of stuff. But I think the biggest thing that crossword people have in common is flexibility of mind, curiosity, a lightness. And you can just talk with someone and think, huh, yeah, that's a lively mind. This person's going to like crosswords. What about Scrabble? Scrabble is interesting. Yeah, there's obviously an overlap because Scrabble and crosswords both involve words and spelling. But those two communities are really quite different because with crosswords, you have to know what the words mean. And with Scrabble, you don't. Scrabble is more of a mathematical game that happens to involve words. You memorize the dictionary, first of all, the Scrabble player's dictionary, and then you have to have that mathematical ability to combine letters for high-scoring words and then all the strategy that goes into being a good Scrabble player. So there's surprisingly little overlap between the Scrabble community and the crossword community. Most people are good at one or the other, not both. There's also a surprising non-overlap between crossword and Sudoku people. Sudoku, it's a pure logic game. You don't have to know anything. And that's not a put-down. Sudoku is a great mental exercise, but it's just a different sort of beast from crossword. I'm the worst at Sudoku and vaguely okay at crossword puzzles. Us word people just can't do the Sudoku. That's my excuse. 
Some people love both, and I'm one of those who love both, but uh, I'm in a tiny minority, I think, on that. I like Sudoku and crosswords, too. You guys are in the tiny center sliver of the Venn diagram of overlap between those two worlds. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you work for two very important and some might say somewhat stuffy news organizations, the New York Times and NPR. Any advice for the rest of us when it comes to taking your work seriously but not taking yourself too seriously as someone who creates the moment of play for millions of Americans as they're doing their due diligence to get the news? Wow, well, that's a good way to put it. I am very fortunate to work for these two organizations, The Times and NPR, that have smart, interesting, curious audiences. If I were editing a crossword for any other newspaper, it would be a different sort of puzzle because I would be targeting the puzzle for a different sort of person. For the Times and for NPR, I can assume that my audience is smart and knowledgeable and has a lively mind, and I can get away with tricks that I couldn't get away with anywhere else. That's a good way of putting it because I tend to judge the validity of a newspaper based on whether or not it carries the Times crossword. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's, I like that. I wish more newspapers around the country thought that way. Although it's pretty good. The uh, Sunday Times crossword appears in about 300 other publications around the world and the Daily crossword in about 150 papers. Will Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us. It was really nice to talk with you. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. Follow him at Will underscore Schwartz on Twitter. He is the crossword editor for the New York Times. He's also NPR's Puzzle Master, and he's the owner of Westchester Table Tennis Center. Just ahead, that funny guy with the trucker hats. Judah Friedlander. That homework and nerd confessions right here on Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Judah Friedlander is a stand-up comedian. He played Frank on 30 Rock. You know, the one with the hat that always said a different thing. Yeah, that one. Turns out he loves ping pong, too. How did this become the ping pong episode? I don't know, but I'm pretty into it. Is the story true that you had a choice at one moment before either show had really gotten its legs under it to do either 30 Rock or Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip? Yeah, I did get an offer from both shows. I was never planning on doing a sitcom because for the most part I didn't like them. I thought they were crap. And then uh, I got an audition to go in for, I think it was called the Untitled Tina Fey Pilot. That's good like, oh, enough for me. <laughs> I like Tina Fey. I'd never met her, but... I'd seen a two-person show she did with Rachel Dratch at UCB Theater in New York and was a big fan of her. So I was like, oh, this sounds cool, and it films in New York. And then I found out Alec Baldwin was attached. I'm like, I've always loved him as an actor. So I think it was shortly after that they wanted me to audition for Studio 60. It was going to film in L.A., which I didn't want to do. I'd just moved back to New York. And then I knew I would have to cut my hair and stuff for the role. <laughs> and I don't mind doing that for movies. I've done that many times for movies where I completely changed my look. I like doing that. But when you sign a TV deal, you're basically signing away eight or nine months out of the year for six years. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to do that because 
my look is also a big part of my stand-up act. Things are intertwined, the look and jokes and everything. So I went in anyways. They convinced me to go in. And I thought the script, comedically, I didn't think it was that strong. Dramatically, I thought it was good. So I auditioned, went in there. I was Aaron Sorkin. Things went well. And then I got a call saying that they want to hire me for that for a recurring role. Not the lead I had auditioned for, but another role. And there were some people that were telling me I should take that over 30 Rock because this is the show that's going to be the huge show. But for me, it was an easy call. And three years later, four years later, I'm at the Emmys. And 30 Rock had just won our second or third Emmy for Best Show. I'm at some after-Emmys party in L.A. Some guy walks up to me. I don't even recognize him. Shakes my hand, looks me in the eye and says, boy, did you make the right decision. <laughs> and then he walks off. And then I realized, oh, that was Aaron Sorkin. Oh, man. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was, like, super cool. <laughs> yeah. He did a guest star role on 30 Rock. Yeah. You here for the sing-off kick? Yeah. Do I know you? You know my work. Walk with me. I'm Aaron Sorkin, the West Wing, Few Good Men, The Social Network. Studio 60. Shut up. Do you know Nick Lachey? I hear he doesn't even let you sit in a meeting. He just screams at you to see how you react. Wait, you're not really applying for this job, right? Of course I am. You've got to take work where you can find it, especially now. Our craft is dying while people are playing Angry Birds and poking each other on Facebook. What is poking anyway? Why won't anybody do it to me? I'm cool. So it's really that bad out there. I mean, you're Aaron Sorkin. been basically doing stand-up several nights a week, even while you were on 30 Rock, since the late 80s. Is that about right? When I first started stand-up, I had no idea how the business works. I literally thought the guys you had seen on Letterman or Johnny Carson had maybe been on stage 10 times, and Johnny Carson walked in with a couple of hot chicks. You know, <laughs> and he'd be like, eh, maybe I'll give this kid a break. I thought the comics that you would see on these late-night talk shows were literally just starting. I had no idea that they had been doing stand-up for years and doing shows every night. So around 91, that's when I realized, oh, you're supposed to do this every night. So <laughs> that's when I started doing stand-up every night. And when I first started in New York, I couldn't get up every night. I was able to get up five nights a week, so that's what I did. And as soon as I can get up every night, I did. And I've been doing that pretty much ever since. Tell me a little about what you learned from 30 Rock. Tina Fey, she's not only just so funny, so smart. As a writer, she is so organized. And organization really can go a long way. The key to success is to determine your opponent's strength and, more importantly, his weaknesses. When Frank is bluffing, he asks a series of inane questions to hide his nervousness. Oh, really? Is that what you think? Is that what I do? Am I doing that right now? Yeah, I'm out. Okay, Rain Man. Tell me what I got. Well, you have two of your cards backwards, actually. Robert Carlock is the other head writer on that show. There were many other great writers on that show. The writers there were so organized in not just the amount of jokes, but where they would place the jokes and how the jokes would very intricately intertwine with the storylines, the multiple storylines within the show. And there was no excess fat in that show. There was nothing excessive. Almost every line was a joke on some level. Yeah, the body mass index of 30 Rock is... You know, Intense. some of the episodes are almost surreal with what's going on in them and the amount of jokes in them. The thing I learned the most from them, besides great joke writing, was their structure, the intertwining of the structure and the jokes, and the organization of their scripts made things very, very strong. Did you take some of that organizational skill to putting together your new documentary-style special? Is that coming out soon for us? I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going to rub off on me, but I'm still in the process of doing that. 
Tell me the deal with your competitive ping pong past and present, if you would. Well, ping pong, a lot of people don't realize, is a competitive sport. It's a real sport. And it's the only sport I can think of where everyone pretty much thinks they can beat anybody. I'm talking about amateurs, you know, people who don't play competitive official tournaments. All of those people pretty much think, after playing for about an hour, that they can probably beat anybody, Um, (laughs) which is weird. You don't hear that about tennis. You don't hear regular people going, oh, yeah, I can beat Roger Federer. You know, you don't don't hear people saying, oh, yeah, I can beat LeBron in one-on-one, I'm pretty sure. You don't hear that. But in ping pong, you always hear people who aren't competitive players saying that. And I'm not sure exactly why that is, but people have to realize that, you know, the top table tennis players in the country and the world, these are people who train six hours a day every day since they're little kids. And it's as highly skilled and technical a sport as any sport out there, if not more highly skilled and technical than most sports out there. My brother actually went away to ping pong camp for a week where he all day just trained ping pong, learned all different kinds of techniques. I never went to ping pong camp. My brother taught me a few things. That's when I became aware that there's like real ping pong out there. In ping pong, it's kind of like if you're into skateboarding, it's a little similar where if you're a competitive ping pong player, you don't just buy the paddle already made. You buy the wooden blade and there's hundreds of different types of wooden blades to buy. And then you buy each rubber sheet separately. You don't buy two rubber sheets and just put them on. You buy one rubber sheet. It comes in a square. And then there's a special glue for the uh, ping pong panel. So you glue it on. You put the square rubber sheet on. Then you cut the rubber so it fits the paddle. And then you get a different rubber for the other side of the paddle. Put those on and then you have your paddle. I remember the first time I saw somebody show up and unzip a case on their paddle and I knew that I had no idea what I was getting into, yeah. that they brought their own and it had I a zipper case. Yeah. I, always, I travel with my ping pong paddle. I have my ping pong paddle. How much of it is a mental game? Because I imagine you're quite a good trash talker considering how quick-witted well, you are on stage. It's a mental game and it's a physical game. Kind of like hitting a baseball or pitching in baseball. It's a very highly skilled game. If you just take someone who's in perfect physical condition, that doesn't mean they can ever hit a baseball or throw a strike. Right. Ping pong's the same way. There's so much technique involved that takes hours and hours and years and years of training. What made you decide that ping pong was going to be sort of the release when you're on the road? Most cities you can find something, and a ping pong paddle's easy to travel with. Thanks to Judah Friedlander for talking with us. He's at Judah World Champ on Twitter. His book is How to Beat Up Anybody, an instructional and inspirational karate book by the world champion. And now we've got homework from Will Shorts. For anyone who has never done a New York Times crossword or think they can't do it, try a Monday puzzle. The New York Times crosswords get harder as the week goes on. Monday is one of the easiest puzzles around. I mean, I try to make it interesting. It's got intellectual substance to it. But all the words and all the stuff in the puzzle, almost, is stuff that you know. Try a Monday New York Times crossword and see how you do. A Monday puzzle. This is nice advice. And if you're a nerd who does the Sunday puzzle and finds it easy, good for you. Gold star. There's no need to be smug about it. But I'm going to give the Monday puzzle another chance. That's my homework. And here's homework from Judah Friedlander. I got two things. First, I mean, if you're into nerds, I did a movie called American Splendor. It starred Paul Giamatti. It was about a comic book author, Harvey Pekar. Did graphic novels. 
and I play his friend and a guy who is also in his comic books, Toby Radloff. And Toby bills himself as the genuine nerd, like the nerd amongst nerds. Yes, the nerd of nerds. So if you consider yourself a nerd and you have not seen American Splendor, you should see American Splendor. And the real guy I played in that movie, Toby Radloff, you should Google Toby Radloff, find him on Facebook or Tumblr or Twitter, and follow Toby. Because Toby still does a lot of cool online videos and stuff like that. And he is the genuine nerd. What movie could possibly be worth driving 260 miles round trip for? It's a new film called Revenge of the Nerds. It's about a group of nerd college students who are being picked on all the time by the jocks. So they decide to take revenge. Uh, so what you're saying is you identify with those nerds. Yes, I consider myself a nerd. And this movie has uplifted me. Oh my God, Trisha, I've actually seen that movie. This is one of the 10 movies you've seen? It's one of the 10 movies I've seen. It's really good. I'm kind of a graphic novel nerd, so this is perfect. Now it's time to hear from you. Time for Nerd Confessions. Nerd Confessions! Hi, Nerdette. This is Heather with a Nerd Confession. So I was obsessed with the Lord of the Rings movies. And I'm not just talking about going to the theater hours in advance so I'd be the first in line or seeing the movies multiple times, so I did both of those things for all three movies. The thing I did that I think puts me into nerd confession slash obsession territory was to collect every article, advertisement, ticket stub, interview I could find and staple them to my bedroom wall. So imagine a wall covered in newspaper and magazine clippings and you have the idea. I mean, it was like when in a crime show the detective finds the serial killer's lair and it's a wall covered in photos connected with red yarn and that's kind of what i was dealing with so yeah i basically had a serial killer level obsession with the lord of the rings movies and you know what i'm okay with that thanks for being my safe space nerdette oh my wow (laughs) well done nerd Call us at 312-600-5638 to tell us about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags is welcome. You're going to put your stake in the ground on that now? Is. Everything is. Okay, fine word, nerd. We'll do it your way. But everything. It's a prepositional phrase. (laughs) But now, after months of saying it wrong, now is when you're putting your stake in the ground. Really? Now? Everything from epic fails to humble brags are welcome. See, now I just feel wrong, but... Right. At the same time, I don't know how to feel about this anymore. (laughs) Call us and leave your nerd confession at 312-600-5638. Or suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile. Or just say hi. We love voicemails. Thanks to Puzzle Master Will Shorts and world champion Judah Friedlander for coming on the show. Find us at nerdatpodcast.com. That's where you can sign up for our email newsletter. It's on the left side of the homepage. Talk with us on Twitter at nerdatpodcast. Like us on Facebook. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from Joe Dassault, Patrick Burns, and Iris Lynn. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our home stations are WBEZ and WCQS. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Throw some stars and write a review on iTunes if you're feeling generous. Like the excellent Felix Will did on iTunes. 
We appreciate all the stars, the retweets, and the shares. There's one other way you can help Nerdette. If you're a nerd with a business or who works for one that wants to get your message heard by Nerdette listeners, you can help underwrite this show. Email nerdettepodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.